0: Thanks for tuning in to Redeeming Grace Bible Church. Here at Redeeming Grace Bible Church, it's our full conviction, as Paul told Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.16, that all scripture is God-breathed and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, equipped for every good work. We pray as a result of this sermon, you come to see and know Christ more clearly and if you do not yet know Christ, that you might also come to see him as Lord and Savior. And the earth to worship,
1: the of First Samuel chapter two, starting at verse 11. Then Elkanah went home to Ramah, and the boy was ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli the priest. Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. The custom of the priests with the people was that when any man offered sacrifice, the priest's servant would come while the meat was boiling with a three-pronged fork in his hand, and he would thrust it into the pan or kettle or cauldron or pot. All that the fork brought up, the priest would take for himself. This is what they did at Shiloh to all the Israelites who came there. Moreover, before the fat was burned, the priest's servants would come and say to the man who was sacrificing, Give meat for the priest to roast, for he will not accept boiled meat from you, but only raw. And if the man said to him, Let them burn the fat first, and then take as much as you wish, he would say, No, you must give it now, and if not, I will take it by force. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. Samuel was ministering before the Lord, a boy clothed with a linen ephod, and his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Elkanah and his wife and say, May the Lord give you children by this woman, for the petition she asked of the Lord, so they would return to their home. Indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy samuel grew in the presence of the lord now eli was very old and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting and he said to them why do you do such things for i hear of your evil dealings from all these people know my sons it is no good report that i hear the people of the lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord and also with manfold. Each week, we remember that even though the grass withers and the flower fades, that the word of our God remains forever. Let's go to the Lord in a prayer of illumination. Dear Heavenly and Gracious Father, thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you that you have preserved that through the ages and that uh, we can have that, Lord, that it just reveals who you are, Lord, and just our, our desperate need of a Savior and Uh, Lord, we just uh, pray that as Pastor Aaron opens and and brings forth the word this morning, that you would grant him strength and and wisdom, Lord, that you would just use him and work in each one of our hearts, Lord. Uh, We're so easily uh, swayed and our minds wander so easily, Lord, to the, the things of this earth. And Lord, we just pray that you would just feed us. Uh, from your word that we may be just uh, well watered, Lord, that we may be uh, like a a tree planted by streams of water, yielding fruit, Lord, and uh, may we just be encouraged and go forth and just uh, giving you honor and giving you praise, Lord, and just living our lives uh, for you. All this we ask, not because of anything in and of ourselves, but only through Christ alone. Amen. You may be seated.
0: All right, thank you,
2: David. So we're continuing on this morning in our study of uh, 1 Samuel. And of course, being um, Father's Day, we also, um, I guess in the Lord's providence, find ourselves with these two contrasting portraits. We could say uh, two different fathers or two different families. But certainly we see in this section a very strong contrast between the family of Eli and his sons and what the Lord is doing through Hannah and the raising up of young Samuel. I think one of the reasons we know that scripture is true is that it does not gloss over things for us. It it actually records history as it took place, and yet in the midst of that history, with all of of its warts and all of its uh, shocking events that take place, we find that a holy and gracious God is working through it. And there are times in the scriptures when we see men and women trust God and display great faith and courage to the Lord and humbly walk before him and God used them mightily. And then there's also times when we see men and women ignore God and disregard his word. And then we watch as they reap a harvest of destruction and just judgment. And the more that I look at this book of 1 Samuel and 2 Samuel really, uh, they come together obviously realize how masterfully it is written. It is far more than just a retelling of history. It is is far more than just a biography of Samuel or of David, but this is a book that the Spirit of God has inspired, and it is a book of prophecy and a theological portrait of God in his ways and, and who he is. And it started in a very unexpected way with a Ordinary, common family living on the hills of Ephraim. And yet Hannah was barren, we were told. She could not have children. And her story almost becomes a picture of the state of Israel. Not only are we told of this young woman who is barren, but we see that it comes in a time when the nation, the 12 tribes of Israel, are in a state of barrenness. We, we know that judges ended with the, the statement that everybody did what was right in their own eyes, for there was no king in Israel, and so we have this humble, seemingly insignificant family, and yet Hannah, in a place of desperation, as they come to the, the tabernacle at Shiloh, she offers up a prayer to God praying for a son, and that if God would grant her a son, that she would devote him to the Lord all the days of his life. and we know that God was pleased to answer her prayer, and she did in fact have a son and named him Samuel. And roughly about five years later, after she weans the boy, um, three to five probably would have been fairly common in that time. We know that Hannah was faithful to her vow. She brought Samuel to the temple and was going to devote him to the Lord, leave him with Eli the priest. And they come there. And we had the last several uh, weeks, we looked at Hannah's prayer, her song of praise, as she brings this boy to the tabernacle at Shiloh and plans to devote him to God. And we have this response of Hannah at the beginning of chapter 2. And what is incredible to note in this prayer is she actually says very little about herself or about the gift that God had given her. In fact, she is so fixated on the giver of the gift that she almost doesn't even mention uh, her own state. She is overwhelmed with who God is and, and what he has done and his promises for his people. We saw that she praised God as the God of her salvation. She praised God as the one who is holy, who is, who is matchless. There are none beside this God. She praised him as the creator and sustainer, the just judge who executes judgment upon the earth Bringing balance to the imbalances of wickedness and evil. And then last week, we also saw Hannah praise God as the one who establishes his people and his king. And vanquishes the enemy. All of this, ultimately pointing us to Christ, the future king and anointed one of Israel. And so after this... Song of praise. We don't know if if Hannah sung it or if she read it or if this was something she prayed privately to God, but we have it recorded for us and we're so thankful for that. And this prayer actually is a lens through which we understand the rest of the book, actually it is in many ways a lens in which we understand redemptive history. And we've seen how even in the ministry of Christ, there is reference to this prayer. Mary would pray something very similar as God brings the child to Mary in the incarnation of Christ. And so immediately after this, we find the very things that Hannah's describing, the very God who she is praising, We see him at work in the events that follow and the very things that Hannah described of the Lord bringing balance, the one who, remember, weighs the actions in the scale and restores balance. We see God begin to execute this balance in Hannah's own lifetime. And we have this incredible contrast that begins to unfold before us. Uh, this, if there ever was a clearer uh, contrast in the scriptures, I don't know where it would be. But there is obviously, as probably Samuel writing this account, uh, we have on the one hand, this young boy, Samuel, the son of Alcanna, who even at a young age, we're told, is ministering to the Lord in the presence of Eli. Probably around five uh, years old, and we 're told already young Samuel is ministering to the Lord, maybe he 's getting wood and bringing it into the tabernacle for the altar, maybe Samuel 's helping carry the water or helping with the various Israelites who bring in their sacrifices and offerings, or maybe he 's tending to the the incense we 're not sure exactly what this looked like, but we see him ministering to the Lord even as a young child. And what a wonderful picture, and I would say prayer for all of us, even as our own children. We long to see them like this, ministering to God. And it's such a blessing to hear children recite the the scriptures, or to hear their voices lift up in praise to God. Or even the children after love to help, you know, collect the hymn books. And maybe it's during the mealtime, helping with cleanup. These are ways in which we we together minister to to God. And we see this of young Samuel as he begins. But immediately the curtain closes, as it were, and the music, if you were to imagine this in a, in a, you know, a, a movie setting, the music would, would, would suddenly change and there would be sort of an eerie tone to, to, the, to the music. And, and there's, all of a sudden we hear sinister laughter, not laughter of, of pure godly joy, but of mischief and arrogance. And we're taken quickly in verse 12 to this contrasting scene of Eli and his sons and the evil that was going on in the tabernacle. And we're told that they were, in fact, worthless men. Um, the, the literal uh, translation here actually would say sons of Eli, sons of Belial. Belial became a name in, in, in the Old Testament and even into the New to reference wickedness, evil. In fact, it later became even a name that was associated with the devil himself, So we have the son of Elkanah, Samuel, ministering to God. But then we also have the sons of Eli, who are known to be sons of the devil, as it were, sons of wickedness. And we're told they did not know the Lord. They had no love for God in their hearts. And we're reminded here of the grave situation within the 12 tribes of Israel. We see this bright light in the life of Alkanah and Hannah and, and God blessing them. But we're taken back to re- be reminded of how desperate of a situation we find ourselves here um, in the time of the judges. Well, the, the, the last place you would hope to expect uh, to find corruption and evil and wickedness is in the very tabernacle of God. The the very place that is supposed to to represent God to his people, where the people can come and and bring their offerings and praise and and be served by the shepherds whom God has appointed. The last place we would hope to find this sort of uh, thuggish behavior at the sons of Eli. We're told that it is happening even in the very offerings that are brought. And we're told of two specific sins that they are guilty of here. First of all, they are randomly going throughout the the various pots of the people of Israel as they're cooking their meat, and they are randomly selecting cuts of meat by jabbing a fork into the pot, and then whatever comes up out of it, they are eating. Now, we might say, well, what's the big deal? I don't quite see what's wrong with that. Well, we know in Deuteronomy 18, God gave specific instructions as to what cuts of meat the priests were to eat and what cuts of meat were to be devoted to the Lord as an offering. And so by doing this, not only are they disregarding the Word of God, but they are essentially stealing from the Lord the very offerings that He said belong to me. And the the second description we have is very similar. We're told that as the Israelite people were offering their animals Upon the altar, and, and, and there is this fattened calf or, or sheep that is upon the altar. And the, the meat, according to Leviticus 7.31, it is supposed to be left on the altar until the fat had been burned off. And this too belonged to the Lord. He said, that portion is mine. It belongs to me. Only after the fat had been burned off and the meat cooked, then the meat could be given to the priests. As their sustenance and their portion. So here again we find they were stealing from the Lord, disregarding his commandment, and in effect making a mockery of the sacrifices that God had instructed to have come to him. And this is the summary we have In verse 17 of this great sin that they were doing. Thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord. For the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. And that word contempt is the the same word that God would say to Moses in Numbers 14.11. He said, how long will this people despise me? How long will they... Not believe in me in spite of all the signs that I have done them. And that word despise is the same word that is being used here. This this despising of God in the very place where He was to be worshipped and represented. Or the psalmist uses this same word in Psalm 10, for the wicked boasts of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. Same word there, renouncing the Lord. You see the seriousness of what they were doing. This isn't just you know, being, being picky about what cut of meat that you wanted for dinner. But this is a, a mockery of the, of the God who saved them, who delivered them. A belittling of his sacrifice. A renouncing of the Lord. A despising of the Lord. And we find time and time again in the scriptures that there are few things that kindle the fury of God as when those who are supposed to represent him to his people take advantage of that position and abuse it and use their position to fleece the flock or to, to uh, elevate themselves, to promote themselves at the expense of the ones who they were supposed to serve. We see the, the same response even as Christ would dress the, the, priest, the, the, the Pharisees and the religious leaders of his day and call them whitewashed tombs, brood of, of vipers, you were put in place to care for my sheep, and here you are you are taking advantage of them. You are making a mockery of my sacrifices. As God told the prophet Jeremiah in Jeremiah 23, "Woe to the shepherds who destroy and scatter the sheep of my pasture." declares the Lord. Therefore, thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, concerning the shepherds who care for my people, you have scattered my flock and have driven them away, and you have not attended to them. Behold, I will attend to you for your evil deeds, declares the Lord. Then I will gather the remnant of my flock out of all the countries where I have driven them, and I will bring them back to their fold, and they shall be fruitful and multiply. I will set shepherds over them who will care for them, and they shall fear no more, nor be dismayed. Neither shall any be missing, declares the Lord. And we see this evil happening in the very family that was appointed by God to shepherd and care for the people. And as a, as a church body, we, we need to keep one another accountable. That praying that God would would give us a a fear of his name. Really, the the, the primary problem here is is that they don't know the Lord. There's no fear of God in their hearts. If we're cultivating the fear of God in our hearts and in our lives, and you can pray for for me as a pastor or for Dave as an elder, as as, as in a position of leadership, that the fear of God would be upon our hearts and that there would be a sense of trembling as as we minister the word of God and seek to provide oversight to the flock of Christ. And you yourselves, even in your own homes as fathers, you stand as a sort of priest over your home. And as your children look on, do they see in dad someone who knows the Lord, someone who fears the Lord? Or is this this kind of casual disobedience against the things that God has forbidden? What sort of media are we taking in in front of our children do not think that, they, that they're not aware of, of what's going on. Maybe they're, they're told to, to go to bed and, and, and you know, it's mom and dad's time and, and, and yet we have to be intentional. We have to continue. To be examining our own hearts. Is my life displaying to my children someone who fears God, who honors his word and his commandments? We remind ourselves as Revelation 1.12 describes Jesus as the one who clothed in the priestly garment with the royal sash around his waist, he walks among his lampstands tending to his lampstands. And he himself will war against the unfaithful shepherds who abuse the flock of Christ. And just as the horror of this situation begins to settle upon us and we begin to realize the offensiveness here Um, suddenly again the the, the scene changes and we're taken back to Samuel. And, And you see this back and forth as the author is building this strong contrast between this line of Eli and the son of Elkanah, Samuel. Now we're told in verse 18, again the scene shifts. Samuel, we see again, ministering before the Lord a boy clothed with a linen ephod. And his mother used to make for him a little robe and take it to him each year when she went up with her husband to offer the yearly sacrifice. Then Eli would bless Ocana and his wife and say, may the Lord give you children by this woman for the petition she asked of the Lord. So then they would return to their home. And indeed the Lord visited Hannah and she conceived and bore three sons and two daughters. And the boy Samuel grew in the presence of the Lord and so we again see Samuel there in the temple now maybe a few years older he's getting taller and stronger now he's able maybe to bring in five or six pieces of wood instead of the one that he initially did. He's able to, to carry larger pails of water for the washings. And we notice that the, the little linen ephod that his mother made him is looking rather small. And we you know sometimes are, are, are shocked at how quickly our children may grow out of their clothing. And you kind of look at them sometimes like, Oh my goodness, I've got to dig out the next tub of clothes because his, his clothes are barely fitting on his body. And here's little Samuel in the presence of God with the, this ephod. And his mother... graciously caring for him, nurturing him. No doubt upon his mind, upon her mind, uh, though she devoted him to the Lord, we see Hannah continue to to nurture young Samuel, to encourage him in what God has called him to. And she makes these clothing, these little linen uh, ephods for him and brings them to Samuel when they come for their annual sacrifice. And we could just imagine the, the scene, uh, Hannah on her way to the tabernacle at Shiloh from the hills of Ephraim. And she would come over the, the, the last hill and get a glimpse of the, the tabernacle in the distance. And maybe she would see the, the smoke, the column of smoke rising up from the tabernacle. And, and her, her steps would quicken as she is looking for her, her little boy and she is carrying something in her arms for him. We have this tender picture of a mother and her love for her son. And how she would be eager to catch up with her son and see how he is growing and presents him with this new ephod to wear. There's a wonderful picture of a God-fearing family who is desiring to equip their son in the task that God has given to him. And maybe Hannah, as mothers like to do once in a while, would take from her, take her hand from her forehead and put it, you know, over to Samuel and see how much he has grown. And we get this summary statement of the boy Samuel, that he continued to grow um, in the presence of the Lord. And again, this incredible picture of what we ought to desire for all of our children and this, this indication that the, the, the hand of God... Was upon this child. This is this is the the grace of God in his life. We don't want to just reduce it down to good parenting or bad parenting, but we see the grace of God in this boy's life and the answer to to no doubt many prayers for him and God's purpose and plans through him. But even in our own homes, you know, we're told our children need many things. They, they need certain vitamins. They, they need to learn to ride their bike. They need to learn to throw a ball or catch a fish or use a, a pocket knife. And I know my... Examples all relate to little boys, because that's who I'm raising. But uh, maybe your daughters, you know, need to learn to, to brush their hair and match their clothes properly. I'm amazed at how quickly, you know, little girls are concerned about their clothes matching. Whereas um, if I can get clothes on my children, uh, you know, it's, it's usually a blessing. And, uh, and, and we're told all of these things that our children need. But do we desire that they grow in the presence of the Lord? If someone was to write an account of our homes, would it be marked by the means of grace that God has given? This is their greatest need. This is our highest calling, more than all of the various trinkets of Babylon that we might put upon them. And there's, of course, nothing wrong with learning to throw a ball or dress nicely. These are good skills to teach our children. But really, what is the chief desire of our heart? Do we desire that they grow in the presence of God? Are we giving ourselves daily to the means of grace, opening the scriptures with them? reading the word with them, instructing them in the ways of the Lord, using the, the, maybe the tools like the catechisms or learning to sing. I mean, we have been given so many resources, but we must put them to use, bringing children to, to worship, to, to, to gather with the saints and hear the, the gospel preached and hear the saints lift up their voice in song. All of this is a means which God has given us that our children also might grow in the presence of the Lord. And we see this was the case in young Samuel's life as God's grace was upon him. And he was nurtured by God-fearing parents who wanted him to be faithful in what God has given him to do. Now we move then back to Eli. And when we thought the the scene was dark enough, we find that there is actually further sins in which these uh, wicked sons of Eli are guilty of. And so in verse 22... We have a picture of Eli himself coming to his boys. We're not exactly sure what their age is. Um, obviously, it would seem to be young men at this point. And he confronts them on, on words and, and bad reports that he is getting regarding his sons. And we're told not only are they making a mockery of the sacrifices of God, but they also are committing sexual immorality with the young women who would come to serve at the temple. These may have been um, women who also took a vow of a Nazarite, devoting themselves to the Lord. Maybe other Levitical women who would come and and help with things around the the temple. Uh, I don't believe this is a reference to temple prostitutes. We know many of the pagan nations associated prostitution with their worship. But this seems to be more that these, these sons of Eli, Hophni, and Phineas had been uh, maybe seducing these women and, uh, and, and they, these women were not there um, as prostitutes, but they had been taken advantage of by these very men who were supposed to be servants of God, who were to be upholding the law and this, this evil wickedness that they have been engaging in. Again, this is happening in the very midst of the tabernacle, the, the place where God's presence is manifest and, and put on display for his people. And so we just get this growing sense of the, the weight of their sin that is piling up to heaven against God. The Lord. On the one hand, Samuel growing and maturing in favor with God and in the ways of God, and the sons of Eli ripening in their sin and in their evil against the Lord. Now, Eli makes a very important um, statement here that actually is one of these themes that runs throughout the entire scripture as he's addressing his sons. He says, in verse 24, know my sons, it is no good report that I hear the people of the Lord spreading abroad. And verse 25, he, he makes this interesting statement. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? But they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. So he raises this question. And it's a little bit difficult. I, I admit I don't have a perfect um, understanding of, of the what's going on here. Many believe that um, there's actually a use of, of uh, uh, in the Hebrew language, words with, with potentially double meaning, which is why some translations like the King James will translate it, if someone sins against a man, the judge will judge him. Um, whereas here it says God will mediate for him. So the, the word that is used is is... Uh, Elohim which traditionally refers to God but the author intentionally uses then uh, you see in your Bibles probably even if it translates it as God um, when he says but if someone sins against the Lord so now we have Yahweh we have the covenant name of God so what exactly is Eli getting at here he uses two different words is this talking about God or man Um, and, and I believe what Eli is saying is that if If a man commits a sin against a man, a crime, then God has put into place the various laws that would govern how that man is to be dealt with, how we are to to, um, execute justice and, and deal with that disagreement. Um, there was the, the laws given to Moses so that the people of Israel could structure themselves and, and know how to respond if someone you know kills another man or if he commits adultery. And, and, and the law of God then gives instruction on what is to be done. And Eli is saying, we have, we have the ability to, to deal with that. But, he says, if someone sins against the Lord, if someone sins against Yahweh... Who can intercede for him? So now your offense is against God himself. And the great question is, who can intercede? Who will stand in the gap between you and God whom you've offended? There is no one, is almost the implication. No one can intercede if God himself has set his face against you because of your sin. And I believe this is the the essence of of what Eli is, is confronting his boys with. If you will not repent, if you will not turn from this evil, who do you expect to stand in the gap between you and the wrath of God? Uh, It's interesting, uh, even as we think about the role of the high priest, which Eli was, we may think, well, couldn't he offer a sacrifice to God or or make some atonement uh, for the, the sins of his son? But really, the question that Eli is raising is that of a mediator. And you see, the high priest is different than a mediator. The high priest was to carry out the various sacrifices of God, but even he could only come into the presence of God once a year into the Holy of Holies. They're sprinkling the blood upon the mercy seat, making atonement for the people, and then he left. And, and, and the, the question that Eli is raising is that of one who can stand and speak to God on behalf of another. In a sense, barter with God, if you will. Um, plead before God, the case of the, the offending party. Now we know that Moses was really the first type of mediator we find in the scriptures And this is why we had Moses and Aaron. Moses functioning as the the mediator, the lawgiver. Aaron to carry out the the priestly duties before God. And Moses was able to, uh, for a time, postpone the wrath of God on behalf of the people. And we see him coming down from the mountain. And there Israel committing idolatry. and, And Moses goes to God and stands in the gap between the wrath of God and and the the sin of the people. And Moses pleads for them as a mediator, as a type of the one to come. But even Moses could not remove the wrath of God. But he was able to postpone it, perhaps for a season. And, And we know Moses himself was also guilty of sin. And he himself did not enter into the promised land. So there is this type of mediator in Moses, here he is. He has already died in, in 1 Samuel, and there is this ongoing question throughout the scriptures, who can mediate between God and man? Listen to the words of Job on this point as well, in Job 9.30. We think of Job as one who was known to be righteous in his day, a righteous man. Surely he could mediate between himself and God, but he says in... In uh, chapter 9, verse 30 of Job. If I washed myself with snow, or it could be melted snow, and cleanse my hands with lye, yet you will plunge me into a pit, and my own clothes will abhor me. For he is not a man as I am, that I might answer him, that we should come to trial together. There is no arbiter between us who might lay his hand on us both. Let him take his rod away from me, and let not dread of him terrify me. Then I would speak without fear of him, for I am not so... In myself, Job says, even if I could wash myself with melted snow, we think of maybe glacier water. You know, everyone is all uh, excited about glacier water, the cleanest water on the planet, apparently. Even if we could wash ourselves with glacier water and in, cleanse our hands with the strongest soap available to man, Job is saying, still, I would be plunged into a pit and my own clothes would abhor me. You see, there is this ongoing problem for humanity as to who can mediate between God and man. And for us who live on this side of the cross, we have the blessing of knowing God's answer. The only solution that is truly put forward to this ongoing problem of humanity, which as Paul said in 1 Timothy 2.5, for there is one God, there is one mediator between man and God, the man Jesus Christ, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. And even today, as we rejoice to, to celebrate in the, the ordinance of baptism, and in baptism, we, we see the picture of what Christ does, how Christ is able to resolve this problem of humanity, the need of a mediator, the need of God's wrath to be removed and satisfied. Christ stands as the better Samuel, the better Moses, the true mediator of his people for those who will come humbly and repent of their sin and believe upon him. And it's by the the Holy Spirit that we are truly washed, truly cleansed of our sin. A washing that the cleanest water could never accomplish and the strongest soap could, could never accomplish. You see, the problem that Eli is raising is actually a problem for all of us who will mediate when we stand before God on Judgment Day and all of our sins are laid bare. Everything is open before the, before the Lord of the universe. The, the books are open and, and all of our sins, all of our thoughts are, are brought into plain sight. Who will stand between us and the wrath of God? Of God. And there is only one, the man Jesus Christ, who himself carried the full weight of God's wrath upon his shoulders at Calvary and cried out, It is finished, it is accomplished, the atonement is sufficient for all who will humble themselves, come to Christ, and repent of their sin and believe upon him. That we must abandon any notion of representing ourselves before the King of Kings. Who would be so arrogant as to think they will answer God on that day? No, there is only one answer, and that is I have been washed in the blood of Christ. That he is my refuge, he is my portion, he is my hope. He has accomplished everything that was necessary for my salvation. I have no ground for boasting, but my boast is in Christ. And sadly, we see these sons of Eli refuse to repent. They will not turn from their evil or acknowledge their sin against God. And we're given a shocking explanation, even working behind the scenes. We are told for it was the will of the Lord to put them to death. And that is a, a very difficult thought for us. We, we like the idea of God you know, desiring that all people be saved and God being a merciful God and a gracious God. And yes, he is a gracious God. And, and yes, we, we affirm that God is not the author of evil, nor does he tempt anyone to evil. He is a, a saving God who would welcome any sinner who would come. But there is also this place in which God is pleased to display his justice and his wrath against unrepentant sinners. In fact, some translations translate this as it pleased the Lord to put them to death. This is according to God's perfect justice. They had defiled the very tabernacle of God. They had mocked his sacrifices. They had shunned his commandments. They had abused the people of God, leading them into idolatry and lawlessness. Is God unjust then to desire their condemnation and his wrath to be displayed upon them. Now we think about terrible criminals maybe in history or even in our own day we hear of a horrible crime and there's always a sense of relief when they're finally caught and they're finally brought to justice. And we think about you know someone like Adolf Hitler who committed horrendous crimes against So many people and against the the entire earth in so many ways. And we we have a sense of relief in hearing that, while he he did finally die. He actually took his own life. And and, and we understand there's a sense of, of justice in that. But then when we come to God, somehow people seem to think at times... That God is, is unfair to execute His judgment upon sinners, that God is unfair at times to leave people in their hardness of heart, to leave them in their rebellion, and to desire that His wrath and justice be displayed upon them. And this is one of the, the, the truths of Scripture, as Paul would say in Romans 9. Yes, God has has called us as vessels of mercy, as, as those whom his grace will be put on display before even the angels of heaven. They look on in the church and they see that God is gracious, God is merciful. But then there are also vessels of destruction, those whom God leaves in their sin, leaves in their rebellion, and God desires to show his just wrath against sinners in their destruction. Does your view of God have room for this truth about who he is? Because I would suggest that if not, it's not God who needs to change, but it is us who need to change. It's us who need to adjust our thinking about who God is and his justice. If we have problems with this, I think it would be one of two reasons. Either we don't truly believe God is just and rightly should punish sin, or we believe that man is actually good and not truly sinful. Because if we believe man is truly sinful, that the, the sins of Eli and Hophnius are sins that any one of us are actually capable of, and at times have been guilty of. Remember, Jesus said, even to look at a woman with lust is to commit adultery with her in your, in your heart. Who here is not guilty of adultery? Who here is not guilty of the very sins for which Eve Hophni and Phineas have committed. And so, if we are honest before God and, and, and see that we are sinners, we are in need, then the only response is to flee to the mediator whom he has put forward in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do not justify yourself. Do not try to find someone who is a little bit worse than you and so you can feel better about your own sin. Rather, renounce your sin. Be crucified in Christ. Come to him that you might die, identifying with the death that he died upon the cross. So as Paul would say, I have been crucified with Christ, but it is no longer I who live but Christ lives in me. That is our great need. That is the need of every man, woman, and child to be born again of the Spirit, to have Christ mediate our case before God, to be washed in His blood. Do you realize that even repentance itself is the gift of God? That we can't even repent, repent properly apart from the convicting and enabling power of God's Spirit. And this is actually very helpful. It may seem initially like, well, if I can't repent, then what's the point in trying? What's the point in doing anything? But instead, what you ought to do is even, as Jesus said, trust the Father loves to give good gifts to his children, which is the Holy Spirit. Come to God. Ask. Father, help me. As David prayed, create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Lord, do the work within me that I cannot do. Cause me to grieve for my sin. Cause me to even see my sin. Help me to turn from it, to, to humbly come before you. And this also helps us as we deal with unbelievers around us. Maybe it's a hardened family member who is, who is evil and, and wicked and they constantly say terrible things about you or maybe the coworker who just seems so hardened against the gospel so indifferent to his own sin how do we respond to these people well when you understand that repentance itself is a work of god paul says in 2nd 2 timothy 2:24 that the lord's servant must not be quarrelsome but kind to everyone able to teach patiently enduring evil correcting his opponents with gentleness For God may perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape from the snare of the devil after being captured by him to do his will. That's what Paul said to Timothy. Timothy, when you encounter obstinate people evil people, people who persecute you and say terrible things about you, what I want you to do is to patiently endure. And I want you to correct them, but do it with gentleness, Timothy. Don't come with arrogance and pride. You do it gently. Why? Because God may grant them repentance, Timothy. And they may understand the truth of their own sin. They may come to their senses. They may escape from the snare of the devil. After being captured by him to do his will, when you understand that, it enables us to, to graciously, patiently come to those who maybe we would naturally not want to, and trust that God may be pleased to use our witness and also bring life into their life into their life. And we finally get this closing statement again regarding Samuel after this gloomy picture of this sons of Eli. Again, in verse 26, we're told, Now the boy Samuel continued to grow, both in stature and in favor with the Lord, and also with man. Again, this contrast. And what's fascinating in Luke 2.52, as Luke describes the growing up of Christ, Jesus, in his incarnation, Almost the exact same phrasing is used in Luke 2.52. And Jesus increased in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and man. You see, Samuel is a type of Christ that God is putting forward as his answer to the wickedness of his people. He is the means through which God will proclaim his word, call the people to repent, establish the king. And all of this points us to the Lord Jesus Christ. Whom whom Samuel foreshadows. The only one who can truly intercede for his people. So let us see the emptiness of sin. And the devastating consequences that it brings. Let us crucify our flesh daily. Through the gospel. Preaching the word to ourselves. Instead of sowing to the flesh. Let us sow to the spirit. Trusting that God will bring about a harvest of righteousness and let us pray for our own children let us pray for one another that together we might also grow in favor favor and wisdom and stature both with god and with men that's a prayer i pray often for my boys and uh may the lord grant it to us let's close there this morning and uh bow with me please as we pray Father, we come before you, and Lord, we, Lord, we acknowledge that we are often so uh, nearsighted, Lord, that there are so many things that we, we miss, or we maybe presume upon your grace, even as Hophni and Phineas did, presume upon your kindness. Lord, I pray that you would instill within us a deep sense of reverence and awe, not only as we gather together in your name, but even in our homes, Lord, that you would just bring conviction where we are indifferent to our sin. Lord, we we see how you have mercifully time and time again put forward a redeemer in, in history. So many times you could have completely destroyed humanity off the face of the earth. We know that you came very close and yet still preserved a line through Noah. And Lord, even here we see in the life of young Samuel, your grace and mercy raising up, Lord, a prophet who will speak your word and walk in obedience to your will, though he himself was in need of a Savior. And we see all of this pointing us to Christ, our perfect Redeemer. I pray that, Lord, we would worship him, spirit and truth, that we would rest in Christ. Help us to, Lord, abide in your word richly. And I ask this now in Jesus' name. Amen.
0: Thank you for tuning in to this sermon preached at Redeeming Grace Bible Church. If you'd like to find out more about Redeeming Grace Bible Church or find other sermons and resources, please visit us online at www.redeeminggracechurch.ca. We pray that the Lord bless you and keep you, the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you, that the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.